welcome to the Fromer Travel Show. I'm your host, Pauline Fromer. So glad to have you on board today. And my first guest is Deborah Kamen. She wrote the most fascinating article for the New York Times. It's called The Rise of Psychedelic Retreats. Welcome back to the Firmer Travel Show, Deborah. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. So I think you had one of the best first lines I think I've read in a New York Times article in a long time. You start the article by saying, one night in 2019, while strangers vomited around her, Lynn Cohen had a vision. Tell us about Lynn Cohen and her vision. Well, thank you. First of all, thank you for that compliment. That's very, very kind of you. And Lynn Cohen is a super interesting woman. She lives in Milwaukee. She's in her 60s. And she, like many, many people, has struggled with depression for most of her adult life. Yeah. And in 2019, she decided to try something new to combat her mental health issues. And she went to Chicago and she drank something called ayahuasca, which is a psychedelic drug that has been around for a very long time. It's from the Amazon mm-hmm. and it, it makes you trip, but it also makes you vomit and it induces nausea. And right. a lot of people say that when you take it, it can cause a breakthrough in your mental health. Um, but there's also a lot of risks involved and that tension right there between the potential healing, but also the potential risk is what I explored in this story. Yeah, it really was fascinating. And I think it's it's a topic that's going to feel familiar to some folks because recently there was a, a limited series on TV called Nine Perfect Strangers about a group of nine people who go to a retreat center and do psychedelic drugs. I, you know, I never had really thought of this as a vacation activity till I saw that show. And now I read in your article that, that this has been around for a good decade now. Yes, it's funny because that show obviously is fiction and it's based right. on a, a novel. And yeah. I was actually working on this story before that show came out. But huh. obviously, obviously, there's a zeitgeist that's being explored right now. This is very much of the moment. And a couple years ago, even a few staffers from Goop, from that travel network, went, uh, they went abroad and they tried ayahuasca. This has become, I am hesitant to use the word trendy, but it, it is trendy. It's in huh. that, that right there, I think, is the challenge that needs to be discussed because there are dangers that are involved because these are very powerful drugs. And when right. things, things become trendy, they can be abused, but they can also reach a lot of people who need them. So there's, there's a lot to talk about here. Yeah, well, that's, I mean, that's the reason why an upstanding older citizen like Lynn Cohen mm-hmm. would be trying this because there has been a lot of research showing that psychedelics can help people with depression and other mental health issues. But of course, it can also tip people over the the wrong way too, right? Yes. And Lynn will tell you, uh, if you speak to her directly, that it did help her immensely. And her life was changed because of it. And she's much happier now. Wow. Amazing. And so a lot of people kind of with the stamp of approval from science uh, are trying this, but let's talk about when things go wrong. What did Mm -hmm. you find on, on that side of the spectrum? Well, this and the stamp of approval, I think that stamp of approval, uh, the ink is not yet dry on that stamp of approval. (laughs) So it's it's tentative. Um, There is very promising research that is starting to happen in the field of psychedelics. 
in terms of what potential they might have for treating certain mental illnesses. And a lot of the experts that I spoke to are excited and optimistic, but extraordinarily cautious. And you have to tread very carefully when you talk about these things. Psychedelics after the 60s and 70s really kind of um, were put completely off limits. And now there are new studies happening that show they can have phenomenal benefits for people with post-traumatic stress disorder and depression. But those studies have been done under very controlled circumstances in clinical trials only. Right. And that's very different than going to a resort in Costa Rica and just being given some mushrooms and trying them out on the beach kind of willy-nilly. Those are two very different circumstances with, with um, very different levels of oversight. If you come from a family with a history of mental illness, if you yourself have a history of cardiovascular disease or other certain predispositions for certain health issues, you may inadvertently be putting yourself in a situation where the psychedelics could unlock some sort of long-term health issues that you're not aware of. And if you are in a resort setting that does not have proper health protocols in place, that could present some dangers. So you have to be very careful when you look into these experiences to understand what you're getting yourself into and understanding what the implications are if something does go wrong. Right. And even if you don't have that background or have those issues, things can go wrong. There have been women who have claimed to have been molested by the, the shamans who are mm-hmm. supposedly there to guide them through this experience, right? Yes, there have been sexual assaults, there have been burglaries. Now, obviously, things go wrong when people travel all the time. This is just another element of risk that can happen in travel. Anytime you put yourself into a situation where you're taking yourself out of your comfort zone and affecting your consciousness, it's it's not that different than putting yourself in a situation where you might have a couple drinks or you might, in another way, remove some of your levels of alertness or awareness. But it's very important that people, particularly women, understand that this is something that is very serious. These are drugs. These are medications. They're not uh, recreational, and they do not have full approval to be used in a recreational sense. So it's a very serious decision to take when you decide to go to one of these resorts. That does not mean that they cannot have life-changing, incredible effects for people. And they have. And a lot of people I spoke to will tell you that. Hmm. Um, It's just complicated. Yeah. Well, and you say some of these drugs don't have full approval, but a lot of these resorts are popping up in places where these drugs are actually legal, right? A lot of them are popping up in places where they're legal, and a lot of them are popping up where they're not legal, which is also very interesting. That's something else that I discovered when I was reporting this piece. I had thought I was reporting a story about retreats only in places like Costa Rica and Jamaica um, and Mexico. Mexico has some little uh, loopholes in their laws that allow for certain types of drugs or certain types of distribution of drugs. But then I also found out that these retreats are happening in America Um, Kind of under the radar, people are talking over sites like Signal and Telegram, and uh, they're communicating secretly and then showing up like Lynn did at an Airbnb. And apparently these are happening all the time, really kind of under the nose of authorities. So they're definitely very prevalent and very widespread if you just know where to look. So that was the most interesting thing I discovered as a reporter on this story. Well, it's a, it's a fascinating piece. It's in the New York Times once again. It's called The Rise of Psychedelic Retreats. Thank you so much, Deborah, for coming on to discuss. It was an absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me.
from psychedelic retreats to a form of transportation and recreation that looks kind of psychedelic. My next guest is Dina Mishev. She wrote a terrific article for the Washington Post called, Think You Can't Ride a Bike in the Snow? Fat Biking is Here to Prove You Wrong. Welcome to the Travel Show, Dina. Hey, Pauline. Thank you so much for having me. So I know fat bikes well because I use them in the sand. My in-laws have a house in Nantucket that's at the end of a long sandy road. And so we got fat bikes to use on the sand, but they're, they're pretty crazy looking and they must be even more wacky looking in the snow, I would think. That's it. So I have actually never ridden one on the sand. So in huh. my mind, they're wackier looking on the beach than they are <laughs> on the snow. <laughs> but you, you were kind of one of the first, I don't know, proponents or, or people to do this. And it's become a major trend. This is now a way that a lot of people are vacationing or, or or recreating in snowy areas, right? It's definitely a super cool option. I mean, especially like I mean, I've lived in Jackson Hole now for 24 winters and I've moved here to ski and I still love skiing. But at the same time, you know, skiing every day, oh, I sound like such a brat for saying this, but skiing <laughs> every day all winter long can get a little bit tiring. So it's it's really nice to have another option. And for visitors, I mean, it's been interesting for me, like watching the transition of, of Jackson Hole from purely a ski destination to being a winter destination huh. and like activities like fat biking that, you know, you isn't, are not limited to ski, skiers, I mean, has definitely helped, has been a big part, big part of that transition. Right. And just, just to give people a visual so they know what we're talking about when we say fat biking. What does a fat bike look like? Well, the it it's very similar to a mountain bike frame, but the first thing that you're going to notice is it's absurdly large tires. <laughs> right. um, the, the tires, I mean, my my first fat bike that I bought back in 2010 had what was considered fat tires for that time was four inches. And then I treated myself to a new fat bike instead of a season pass to the ski resort last winter. <laughs> and the the rims, the hubs, the rims, and the tires are now up to five inches. So that's kind of considered the standard. And in snow, they can have studs or not. Um, I have a tendency to fall and break things. So I definitely ride with studs on my tires. <laughs> Oh, do you have to put in the studs? How does that work? The, the tires either come with or without studs. Oh, I see. I see. And the interesting thing is fat biking or fat tire biking is an activity that's even better when the skiing isn't so good, right? I mean, so when? how do you decide when to bike and when to ski? It's actually, it's not really... It's not really a decision. If it's snowed, you can't go fat biking. Huh. Um, and like I would want to be skiing if there's fresh snow. And then if it hasn't snowed and, you know, it'll just be groomers or big bumps out at the ski resort or sun crusts, that's the best. Those are the best conditions for, for fat biking. So the two complement each other so well. Yeah. Yeah, you can go to a, a ski resort area, and on the days when there's fresh powder, you do that. And when the days that it's packed, you do something else. But where do you do it? Are there 
uh, resorts dedicated to this? I don't know that there are any dedicated fat biking resorts yet, but there are a, there are a lot of ski resorts like Grand Targhee Resort, which is on the western side of the Tetons from Jackson Hole. In 2012, it became the first ski resort in the country to open its groomed Nordic ski trails to fat bikers. And since then, other ski resorts and Nordic centers have followed their lead. Okay. Uh, but what has become more, more fun and I think better for all user groups is that, I mean, there are also now areas where there are trails that are specifically groomed for fat bikers. And so yeah. these trails are kind of more like the flowy single track trails that you would ride on a mountain bike in the summertime. Right. And you can't, you, or you shouldn't do it on the trails that are meant for long uh, cross country skiers, right? Well, this you, you can, but you definitely want to be careful. It's very condition dependent. And it's kind of, if you, if you're riding your bike on that trail and it's leaving a mark, it's too, it, it's not packed down enough for you to be riding on it. Right. So and you're, you can, you're kind of destroying consider, it for the cross country skiers. You're screwing with their trail. Exactly. And I mean, where fat bike, and like, that's, that's something that, you know, a, a beginner fat biker might not know and understand. And there's definitely been fat biker Nordic skier conflicts over that. Really? Um, oh my goodness. So that, so that's, you know, why the single track trails are nice. And it's, and I think more Nordic trail systems are getting better with with signage and kind of just sharing, sharing kind of the rules of, of fat biking to make the experience better for everyone. Yeah. Is it a good workout? It, it is like there's the, the single track trail that I can ride most easily from my house. I mean, it gets my heart rate up higher <laughs> than anything, than anything yeah. else that, that I do pretty much. But it's I, like, I mean, it, it doesn't have to be, I mean, if you just do like a, a mellow flat trail, that is just like riding a cruiser bike on a pathway kind of otherwise like the single track trails again are kind of more like mountain biking where it's sort of like an interval workout where you have to like go hard for 10 seconds up a little hill and then you get to you know you're going downhill for a quarter of a mile and you don't really have to pedal yeah yeah now you own your own bike if people want to try this when they're on vacation how can they do that there are like Grand Targhee has its own fleet of rental of rental fat bikes, and I'm sure other ski resorts do too. So I would say if someone is planning a ski vacation or just a winter vacation to a snowy place, the first place that they should should check for rentals are a ski resort in the area, or then go to an area bike shop. And then um, there's some Nordic centers across the country that rent them as well. Right. I can't, I can't wait to try it. I got to say, I, I love fat biking on the beach. It's, it's just delightful. And it's also delightful because everybody laughs at you because your, your tires look so silly. It looks like a clown bike. Uh, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much, Dina, for appearing on the Fromer Travel Show. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me and letting me chat about one of my favorite winter things. Our last guest is both a columnist and a mom. She writes for Outside Magazine, and she has a really thoughtful essay up 
this month. It's called, I don't care if your toddler climbs a mountain. Stories about kids who break hiking or climbing records feel like a continuation of an outdated and unhealthy attitude towards outdoor recreation. Her name is Krista Langlois. Welcome to the Firmer Travel Show, Krista. Thank you, Pauline. Glad to be here. So what what inspired you to write this piece? Well, as you mentioned, I write a monthly column for Outside Magazine about all things kids and nature and the outdoors. And I kept getting ideas from my editor, who was getting these ideas at his editorial meetings, um, about, hey, would you like to cover this story about this you know, four-year-old who hiked the Appalachian Trail or this four or five-year-old, I can't remember, uh, you know, a young child who hiked all of New Hampshire's 4,000-foot peaks. And they kind of kept sending me these these ideas for things to cover in my column. And I kept saying, no, I don't really, no thanks, this is not really what I would like to write about. And finally, I explained to my editor why I didn't want to write about them. And he got back to me and said, would you actually like to turn that perspective into a column? And um, I was a little bit hesitant at first because I didn't want to be disparaging of the kids or families who do these types of um, long distance hikes or record setting or these very impressive outdoor feats. I, I didn't want to put them down or make them feel bad in any way. Right. So it was a little bit of a you know, writing the column turned into a bit of a, a balance between pushing back against what I thought was very, not very healthy portrayal of, of children in the outdoors, and also, again, not, not wanting to offend these families. Sure. But you, you give a perfect portrayal of children in the outdoors when you discuss your own toddler on hikes. Uh, so, so what does that consist of? Well, my daughter is three years old now, three and a half. And she has been hiking multiple times a week uh, since I think her first hike was when she was 11 days old. And mostly that's because we live in a small town in Colorado and we have excellent access. We have trails pretty much right outside of our door. Uh, And we have a dog who has a lot of energy. So we go on several hikes a week just to kind of tucker our dog out. And then obviously we've done bigger hikes with her as well. She's been hiking in Iceland. She's been backpacking. She's been on bigger mountain hikes. And as I say in the piece, you know, you'd think with all of that experience that she'd be a pro hiker by now, but she's not at all. She's at the age of three? Some, no. Yeah. I mean, some days <laughs> didn't want to leave the house to go for a hike at all. And then other days we're out for four hours and we barely cover a mile because She's either wanting to be carried or she's wanting to stop and have snacks or examine uh, mushrooms or spiders or, you know, whatever she sees on the trail or climb rocks or whatever. And so we we get out, quote unquote, hiking a lot. But, you know, we're not just like powering down the trail, crushing miles. We're uh, really taking our time and going very slow for the most part. Right. And that seems toddler appropriate. And I and I, I like the fact that you made the point, it felt almost like you were saying, let's stop trying to colonize nature. Is that a, a fair way to, to say what, what your point in the in the column was, that, that you wanted parents to have a different uh, approach to both nature and their own children uh, than, than these other parents who, bless them, they have superhuman toddlers, but most of us <laughs> won't. 
Yeah, you know, I, I think I think that is a fair portrayal. I think to a large extent in North America, we kind of have colonized nature. And I think that in, over the last century, century and a half or so of um, outdoor pursuits and outdoor sports and exploits, we have kind of tended to to put our own, you know, our own relationship with the outdoors uh, has been one of kind of conquest of like, oh, I'm going to summit this peak or, you know, descend to this river um, and I'm going to be first or fastest. And as I write in the piece, you know, most of us are not first or fastest or highest or best, but right. um, that has been our relationship to the outdoors. And I think that we are to some degree passing this on to our children when we're kind of uh, expecting them to be the youngest person to, you know, accomplish such and such feat. Um, yeah. And that instead, I just, again, I think a lot of the, the kids and the parents who do that, like the kids are genuinely enthusiastic about it. But when that is the only coverage that the rest of us see about kids in the outdoors, it sort of sets up an unrealistic portrayal of what a child's relationship, most children's relationship to the outdoors is and what hiking or uh, camping or whatever looks like for the vast yeah. majority of parents. No, absolutely. And I think your way is probably instilling more love of the outdoors. It's funny, my, I'm a daughter, I'm a daughter, I'm a mother of uh, a teenager and a 22 year old now and my younger one, we did the W trail in Patagonia, which is long hikes every day. Mm. And my younger one was so angry with us <laughs> that we took her to this beautiful nature area just to hike that she, uh -huh. she, she wanted to, she, she made us run every day because she just wanted to get it over with as fast as possible. And so I <laughs> ran the W trail. And I think maybe if I had, I don't know, let her meander and look at things and bribe her with candy when she was a toddler. Maybe she would have liked hiking more as a, as a teen. I don't know. Who knows? Well, yeah, who knows? You know, I think our kids just grow up to be whatever they're going to be and they have their own inclinations. <laughs> and, you know, maybe if we, depending on um, how we introduce nature to them as a toddler, maybe that makes a difference. But, you know, I think some teenagers are just going to love it and others are going to have, you know, rather, um, you know, get into music or whatever yeah, else, their, wherever else their passions might lie. It could have just been so many hours unbroken with her parents that uh, <laughs> set her off. I don't know. I don't know. Well, thank you so much. I so enjoyed the essay. Once again, it was in Outside Magazine. Thank you, Krista. Thank you, Pauline. My pleasure. And that's it for this week's Fromer's Travel Show. And I got to tell you all, we're going to a new format starting next week. We're going to be doing this show live on a new app called Callin, C-A-L-L-I-N. Uh, so every Thursday at 6 p.m., we will be recording the show and that will allow the listeners to speak to us. So uh, download the app, call in. It's absolutely free. We want to talk to you starting next week. And if you'd prefer to just keep listening to the show here, that'll work too, because we will be doing the show live on Thursdays and then we will be replaying it wherever you get this app. So you're not going to lose your subscription. You can still hear the show, but now you have an option to either hear it and speak with us live or hear it later on on this app. 
it's going to be it's an interesting experiment. Uh, we think it should bring us some very interesting new audience members. Also on the app call-in are such big names as uh, Matt Taibbi. There's some sports names. We're the supposedly the big name in travel. So very, very interesting new development. We're really, really excited. But as I said, you, you're not going to lose the podcast here. We're going to keep going. So so that's that's the news from not Lake Wobegon, but uh, <laughs> the news from New York. Darn it. All right. Let me say what I always say at this point, which is if you are traveling, brava, bravo, and may I wish you a hearty bon voyage. See you next week. No